This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, journalist Vince Beiser is joined in conversation by CIIS professor Jacob Sherman to explore the compelling true story of a hugely important and diminishing natural resource, sand. This event was recorded on September 13, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Good evening, everyone. It's lovely to see you here tonight. I'm here with Vince Beiser, and it's a real treat to get to talk to you, Vince. I was given your book as part of the lead-up to this event, and I've been reading it with real fascination over the last couple weeks. In fact, uh, I took it with me when I was first given it, when my family was out for a Sunday outing, and I took it to Ocean Beach. So I was reading this book, sitting at Ocean Beach, while my little four-year-old boy is literally shoving his face as fully as possible into the sand. Uh, and two weeks That's later, engaging with the text. Yes, like exactly. Uh, but the thing is, is two weeks later, I'm still finding grains of sand in my books pages, uh, and I'm still pouring sand out of my son's shoes, right? So it it made me think about how sand is part of the story you're telling in here is that sand is everywhere. We're surrounded by it. Uh, we're literally standing on it right now. I'm seeing through it with my glasses. And it's so regularly invisible to us. That's, it's an extraordinary, it's a, a kind of an extraordinary unveiling to see that. I, I felt like I was, uh, I felt a little bit like I was awakened out of the matrix because suddenly this book I'm reading is showing up constantly around me and everything I'm touching, everything I'm wearing, walking, using, the screens I'm engaging with. What brought you to write about this? How did you come to notice it in the first place? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I wish I had a, a great story of, you know, incredible journalistic acumen, but actually what happened is, I mean, I'm a, I'm a full-time freelancer, so I'm always hustling for a good story. And I just ran across something uh, in a little environmental magazine about the sand industry in India, um, which turned me on to two things. One is that sand is the thing that we use the most of in the world. It's the natural resource we consume the most of after water and air. And two, that there's so much demand for it in the world today that we're causing massive environmental damage all over the world and people are actually getting murdered over it. And, you know, like you, like just about everybody, I just I never even thought about sand at all beyond, you know, trying to get it out of my shoes. And uh, I just thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard, and I had to find out more. So, yeah, I wound up doing a story for, for Wired magazine about the sand business in India, and the, the deeper I got, the more, you know, the more it sort of blew my mind. I want, to get to, um, I want to get to some of the ways in which we're surrounded by this material, uh, by this substance. Uh, but maybe could you start by telling us a little bit about the that that first article, the Wired article, uh, brought you in contact with some of the 
more unexpected aspects of reporting on sand, right? I imagine that when you started writing about sand, you didn't think you were going to find yourself in harrowing circumstances, staring down mafiosi. I did not equate sand and danger. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like of all the things I've reported on, I did not think that sand was going to be like one of the scarier ones. But yeah, so what happened was, so in a nutshell, as I think most of you here know, you know, sand is the thing that, that cities are made out of, right? We use it for concrete, especially, and glass and roads, billions and billions of tons. And especially in the developing world, in places like India, where cities are growing like crazy, we're using just unbelievable amounts of it um, in a very, very big hurry. And that's, <clears throat> there's so much demand for it that it's actually spawned a whole black market for it. And in India, they call it the sand mafia, which sounds kind of funny, but actually, they're really, it's a really serious business. It's a big, big problem in India. Uh, organized criminal gangs that go around literally stealing sand to sell it on the black market. And they get away with it by doing the same thing that organized crime does everywhere. They bribe cops, they bribe government officials, and if you really get in their way, they will kill you. So I'd heard, I started reading about all this stuff and sort of latched onto the, the murder of this one particular guy. Um, not because it was exceptional, but actually because it was really kind of typical of people who are getting killed in India. The story was, um, he's a farmer named Paliram Chohan, living in a village um, about an hour south of Delhi. And Delhi, of course, is a city that's just growing like crazy, building buildings like there's no tomorrow, and using enormous amounts of sand. So one day, the sand mafia came to this guy's village, just took over, just seized about 200 acres of the village's land, ripped up all the crops, tore up all the topsoil, and started digging up the sand to sell to developers. And this is 100% illegal. Obviously, first of all, it wasn't even their land. It was the villagers' land. Second, sand mining is banned in this area completely because it's, it's close to a bird sanctuary. So this guy, Paliram Chohan, sort of tried to get them to stop. And he sort of went around organizing other folks in the village to, to, to talk to these guys try to get the police involved, try to get the courts involved, try to get media involved. Couldn't get any traction, couldn't get them to stop, but did manage to make enough of a nuisance of himself that it won finally one of these guys took him aside and said, look, you're really starting to annoy us. You're starting to interfere with business. Cut it out or else kind of thing. He didn't stop. Instead, he reported that threat to the police. And about three days later, three guys kicked in the door of his house and shot him dead in his own bed. Right, so so I'd heard about that, and I was like, "Wow, that is just crazy," and uh, you know what a terrible and perfect illustration of what's going on. So I I go over to India, I go down to this village, find the family, and you know spend some time with them, and got the whole story from them. Saw the guy's house and everything like that. And when we were done talking, his son, one of his sons, offered to take me out. To the, to the sand mine, what used to be their, their fields where this was happening. So I said, great, let's go. So uh, we drive out there, um, and it's, you know, it's hard to miss. It's like just a big open pit mine. And we sort of go bumbling around deep into it, and we get sort of get deep into the mine, get out of the car, and we're sort of uh, looking around, taking pictures and stuff. And suddenly this guy, the son, kind of, 
tugs me on the shoulder. He's like, that guy coming towards us. And he points down the road where there's this big guy coming towards us fast, flank followed by three beefy goons carrying shovels heading our way. He's like, that's, that's the guy who threatened my father. And so we were like, okay, time to leave. But we didn't want to look like we were panicking, of course. So we, you know, try to coolly make our way back to the car, but too slow. We get there. We're like just getting into the car when this guy comes up and recognizes the son and says, you know, what are you doing here? Like, didn't you get the message? This is all in Hindi, but I was, they translated it for me afterwards. And we kind of hop back in the car. And my interpreter that was with me says, oh, we're just, uh, we were just having a look around and now we're leaving. And this guy, the, the, <clears throat> the gangster, reaches in, pulls out our poor driver, who was just some poor schnook that we'd hired in Delhi that day, yanks him out you know, by his shirt tail and says, no, you're not. You know, you're not going anywhere. Pulls the guy out, and then so all the, you know, then we of course have to get out of the car and sort of back him up. And there's this very, you know, tense standoff for a couple of minutes with the with the mafia guy going like, "What are you know? What are you doing here? What did you see?" And my interpreter kind of going like, "Ah, we're journalists, but uh, we saw whatever we saw, and now we're going. You're not going anywhere. Yes, we are. No, you're not." And you know. Things looked pretty hectic for a minute there. And then um, what happened was, you want to talk about white privilege. This is white privilege in excelsis. One of the guys notices me, like my obviously non-Indian face in the group, and sort of says something to the, to, to the main mafia. He's like, there's a foreigner there. Like, what, what's he doing there? And that just changed the whole equation all of a sudden, right? Because India is the kind of place where... If you're an Indian gangster and you kill an Indian villager and you spread a little bribe money around, you can get away with it. But if you kill an American, uh, then you could have a lot more problems. So er that just kind of like stopped everybody for a minute. Everybody was kind of looking at everybody else like, what? who is this guy? What's going on? This is a different situation than we thought. And we just sort of took advantage of that to jump in the car and take off. It's harrowing. Uh, if, if, there's that kind of, if there's that kind of violence and that kind of organized crime around it there's clearly a lot of money a lot uh, of money why it's sand <laughs> yeah. yeah the reason why is um like i said sand is you know we need sand to build cities right uh sand like every building that's built anywhere in the world today every shopping mall every apartment block you know every every office tower is made with concrete and concrete is really nothing but sand that's been glued together with cement thousands and thousands of tons of sand i mean you know like you said at the beginning like this floor underneath your feet is concrete those pillars are made out of concrete you know that building across the way the roads that you drove here on they're all just sand right so we need a huge huge amount of it um, to build cities and what's happening in Delhi like in so many other cities all around the developing world is that people are moving out of the countryside it's the same thing that happened in this country a hundred odd years ago people are moving out of the countryside into cities because that's where the money is that's where the jobs are now but it's happening today on a much bigger scale and at a much at a much faster pace I mean to give you an idea in 1950, there was about 750 million people worldwide living in cities. Today, there's about 4 billion people living in cities, and millions more coming every year. 
we're building the equivalent of eight New York cities every single year, right? So if you imagine, think about every high rise and every sidewalk and every road in New York City, we're adding that times eight every single year, right? That's a lot of sand. So there's a huge, huge demand for it. So even though sand is cheap and plentiful, when you're talking about quantities that big, there's a lot of money to be made. And whenever there's, where there's that much money to be made, you know, crime, a black market's gonna come in, crime is gonna become involved. One of the things that I found really astounding uh, in thinking about this was that the, the sand going into our concrete, it just sits there. It's not, it's not like other materials that we're trying to learn how to recycle, even though our recycling procedures always end up losing a significant amount of energy and losing a significant amount of productive material, we still try to recycle a lot of things. But outside of glass, we have trouble recycling the things we're making out of sand. Is that right? Right. <clears throat> so, yeah, um, we can recycle concrete, and we do a little bit. Um, but there's a couple of problems with it. One is, uh, A, it's, real, it's more expensive, right? If you think of all the energy that it takes to crush down concrete, it's usually cheaper to just go ahead and scoop up fresh sand from the bottom of a river or bottom of a lake. Um, the concrete that you get when you crush, or the sand that you get when you crush down concrete often isn't as good of quality because it's got cement on it, maybe other chemicals that were in the concrete. But the main problem is, what you just said, which is that it's not like a bottle or a newspaper, right? When you build something out of concrete, you're not planning to use it once and then throw it away, right? So that it can be recycled. You build something out of concrete, you want it to stay there for 50, 60, 100 years. So all of that sand that we're, that we're using to build stuff is taken out of circulation basically permanently. And there's, there's different types of sand too. That's, that was another... Uh, another sort of eye-opening moment for me reading this book is that there's kind of a connoisseurship of sand. There's more refined sand, better sand. And that's, the better sand's worth a lot, lot more than the common sand, right? Yeah, for sure. So we use sand, I mean, the number of things that we use sand for is crazy. In fact, can I, this is where I'll read a little bit from my book. I've got a little, um, if you'll indulge me for a sec. Um, the number of, talking about the number of things that we use sand for, every time I think of it, it sort of makes my head spin. Um, your life, in fact, depends on sand. You may not realize it, but sand is there making the way you live possible in almost every minute of your day. We live in it, travel on it, communicate with it, surround ourselves with it. Whatever you woke up this morning, chances are good it was in a building made at least partly out of sand, of concrete, like we've said. Maybe it's also plastered with stucco, which is mostly sand. The paint on your walls likely contains finely ground silica sand to make it more durable and may include other forms of high purity sands to increase its brightness, oil absorption, and color consistency. You flicked on the light provided by a glass bulb made from melted sand. All glass is just melted down sand of one kind or another. You meandered to the bathroom where you brushed your teeth over a sink made of sand-based porcelain using water filtered through sand at your local purification plant. Your toothpaste likely contained hydrated silica, a form of sand that acts as a mild abrasive. Your underwear snapped into place thanks to an elastic made with silicone, which is a synthetic compound also derived from sand. 
And silicone also helps shampoo make your hair shinier, makes shirts less wrinkle prone, and it reinforced the boot sole which Neil Armstrong walked on the moon with. You drove to work on roads made of concrete or asphalt, which is sand. At the office, the screen of your computer, the chips that run it, and the fiber optic cables that connect it to the internet are all made from sand. The paper you print your memos on is probably coated with a sand-based film that helps it absorb printer ink. Even the glue that makes your sticky notes stick is derived from sand. At the end of the day, you flop down with a glass of wine. Guess what? Sand was used to make the bottle, the glass, and even the wine. Sand is, wine is sometimes made with a dash of colloidal silica, a gel form of silicon made from sand. So we use all these different, sand it manifests itself in all these different forms. And yeah, for most of them, we need different types of sand. Um, the big problems, I'll say, is just from the most common everyday kind of sand, the construction sand, which is just the sand that you see everywhere. But there are also problems with the sand that we use for glass, which has to be a much higher level of purity, 95% um, pure. Most sand is quartz, and the sand that we use for glass has got to be upwards of 95% pure quartz. When we start talking about the sand that you use to make silicon chips, the brains of our computers, that stuff, the silicon that we use those chips from has to be 99.9119s after the decimal percent pure. I won't even try to say it, but an unbelievable level of purity. And um, just about every computer chip in the world, in fact, is made with the purest quartz sand ever found anywhere on earth, which all comes from one place in North Carolina, of all places. There's a little county in, in Appalachian, North Carolina, which has the purest quartz sand that's ever been found anywhere in the world, without which basically the entire production of silicon chips that runs every iPhone, every iPad, every computer in the world would pretty much grind to a halt. And there's basically one company that is, is that right? There's sort of one company controls 80, 90% of the trade. Yeah, that's right. That's extraordinary. This ubiquitous, omnipresent substance that we're walking on, that we're eating, it's part of our bodies, it's, uh, it, it's made all of this modern world possible, right? It's not, it, I think, when I, te I tend to think a lot about the shifting of ages, you know, the, the shift from a pre-industrial to an industrial age, and I oftentimes think in terms of, uh, of fossil fuels, or I think earlier in terms of salt, but we, we're building it all out of sand, and it's as extractive as any of these other procedures, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's called sand mining, and that's what it is. It's all that sand has to be scraped out of out of the earth in one way or another. And it has the same kind yeah. of desultory effects, oftentimes, on ecosystems and local economies and things of that sort. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So uh, we get most of the sand that we. So the biggest problem, like I said, is is just common construction sand, right? Because it's just a volume thing. We use, I mean, 80, 90% of the sand that we use is for concrete. That's really the number one issue. And a huge amount of that sand comes from the water. It comes from riverbeds, lake beds, comes from beaches, the ocean bottom. And when you dig up, when you dig up that much sand, uh, you do a lot of damage to those places. So rivers, for instance, 
one of the construction industry's favorite place to get sand is from the bottom of rivers because it's pretty easy to do. You just send a dredge out onto the water. You drop a big uh, suction pipe down to the river bottom and just <laughs> suck all that sand right up onto the boat. It's washed. It's clean. It's easy to get to. But there's several problems with that. One is when you basically rip up the entire floor of a river, you've killed anything that was living on the bottom of that river. You also stir up all the other silt and muck and whatever else is down there at the bottom, which clouds up the water, which can suffocate fish, whatever else was swimming in there, fish or shellfish or any kind of, uh, of uh, plant life that was in the water. Uh, if you're doing it in the, in the ocean, it can suffocate coral reefs, right? Because all that silt floats around and eventually it settles back down, settles on the coral reefs and suffocates them. And it also blocks sunlight, right? The sunlight can't get through the water to whatever kind of vegetation and coral reefs was down there. So that kind of sand mining has just obliterated huge numbers of fish and birds, other kinds of uh, you know, animals that, that depend on those, those river ecosystems. I want to cycle back to to some of these environmental questions uh, as we go on, but but maybe we can dive in a little bit more to this the, the astounding ways in which sand is being used. Some that I just I hadn't thought of before. Uh, you quote Mark Twain at one point in here uh, with his he's got a quip about how invest in land they're not making any more of it, uh, but then you point out that we actually are making land. And it's ha it has these huge geopolitical consequences, right? Uh, so who's doing that, and, and how is that being done? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, if basically everybody is, is making new land. Um, it's something we've been, I mean, we've been doing it since, since Roman times, dredging up um, you know, mud and sand, mostly, to make new land. Like most of the Manhattan waterfront was built by the Dutch, when they dredged the, the East and the Hudson Rivers and they just piled all the muck up and let it dry out. And that, it's now uh, riverfront real estate. Um, Treasure Island here in San Francisco is a completely artificial island made of sand dredged from the bottom of the bay. So it's not a new thing, but what is new, what's changed just in the last 20, 30 years is again the scale. We're doing it now, when I say we, I mean human beings are doing it on a scale that has never happened before. Basically because we can, because thanks to you know, advancing technology, we have much more powerful ships that can go out to the, to the deep ocean, that can go down much deeper than ever before and pull up much larger quantities. So we're using it, we're doing that and using that power in a lot of different ways. Um, you guys have probably, a lot of you have probably seen pictures of those crazy palm tree shaped islands off the coast of Dubai. That's all sand. Those are all, that's all just millions of tons of sand that were scraped up off the bottom of the Persian Gulf and piled up to form real estate. Basically, Dubai is this, you know, booming economy. Uh, they've got tons of money and tons of money pouring in. Rich people from all over the world want to have second homes there and want to vacation there, but they don't have much beach. It's a tiny little place. So their solution was simple. They just manufactured more beach. They built all these huge islands where there was nothing but open ocean before and then built hotels and resorts and luxury condominiums on top of them and just created billions of dollars worth of real estate where there was nothing but open water before. So it's been, you know, there's a lot of money to be made. Unfortunately, of course, they built one of those islands right on top of one of the last coral reefs in the Persian Gulf, which is now gone forever. Um, but it's a huge moneymaker. So it's not only Dubai, 
but uh, in China, in Nigeria, in you know, in Indonesia, and at least a dozen countries around Singapore. the world. Singapore is is the world leader in this. Same kind of thing. Very wealthy, very small place. Lots of people there. Their solution has been to just build, keep on building more and more artificial land. They've added something like 40 square miles of land in the last couple of decades, all with sand. In fact, Singapore, <clears throat> so Singapore, of course, doesn't have any of its own sand because it's just this tiny little city-state. So they've been importing sand from all of their neighboring countries, from Malaysia, Indonesia, Cambodia. All of that, the, the sand that's been mined to supply Singapore has done so much damage to all those countries that pretty much all of them have now banned the export of sand to Singapore. Uh, it continues, of course, through the black market, but you know, just, that just kind of gives you a sense of the scale of it. So it's a, it's a huge... Um, moneymaker around the world. There's something like 5,000 square miles of new land has been created. So there are a lot of environmental issues that go with that. But as you mentioned also, there's also really serious geopolitical issues, right? Because it means that countries can literally change the shape of their borders. They change the shape of the countries themselves. And the place where this is the biggest issue is with China. So in the South China Sea, uh, there's a super strategic part of the South China Sea. It's where something like 30% of all the world's shipping goes through there. Some huge amount of the world's fish comes from there, and there are billions of dollars worth of oil and gas underneath the ocean. So it's a really contested piece of ocean. There's nothing there except, if, or until a few years ago, there was nothing there except a few rocks, some coral reefs, some big old coral reefs, and a few like rock outcroppings. So about 10 years ago, China just seized a bunch of those rocks and coral reefs, just declared these are ours now, took them by force, killed a number of Vietnamese soldiers in a skirmish over them, and then set these dredging boats that I was talking to. China has also been building up their dredging capacity in the last 20 years, building enormous dredging ships. I mean, things that are the size of a 60-story apartment building tipped over on its side that do nothing but suck up sand from the bottom of the ocean. They sent a fleet of these ships out there, dredged up millions of tons of sand from the bottom of the ocean, and just piled them on these rocks until they had created islands, artificial islands, where there was nothing but the Pacific Ocean before. Now they've turned those islands into military bases. So where before there was just ocean, now all of a sudden China has what it calls sovereign territory on which they can land nuclear bombers, where they can dock nuclear-powered submarines, where they've got soldiers stationed, where they have anti-aircraft missiles stationed. So, you know, as you can imagine, this is a big worry for all of their neighbors and for the U.S. too. I mean, this has actually become a big flashpoint between the U.S. and China, and it's all over sand. In, in addition to using sand to build everything from uh, the glasses we're drinking water out of to new islands that are becoming geopolitical flashpoints. We also use it instrumentally, right? We don't just use it materially, but we sandblast things. And uh, the, you, talked, uh, you have a chapter in here that focuses on the use of sand in the new fracking economy. Uh, why are we using it there? What's uh... fracking? Yeah. Why sand and fracking? <clears throat> so, 
I'm going to assume this. Everybody here knows what fracking is, right? So to frac, frac to fracture that rock so that the oil can move through the rock, um, you shoot down a high-powered mix of water, chemicals, and sand. So the water and the chemicals shatter the rock, right? They like send spider webs of cracks all through the rock, and then the sand gets shot into those cracks to hold them open because otherwise they would close back up again. So you need that sand to hold those cracks open so that the oil can flow through the cracks and into the well and come back up again. So the fracking boom, this huge fracking boom that's taken off in Texas and North Dakota, has created a frack sand mining boom in Wisconsin. There's no oil, there's no gas in Wisconsin, but you need a very specific kind of sand for fracking. It's got to be really hard and a very specific shape to work in a frack in a frack mine, in a fracking operation. And it just so happens that there's a lot of that sand in Wisconsin. So in the last few years, thousands of acres of farmlands and forests have been torn up all over western Wisconsin to get at this sand, which is suddenly really valuable. And that sand gets trucked and, rail and sent by railroads to North Dakota and Texas where it's blasted down into the ground. It's really, it's pretty amazing. It's one of the places that I went while I was reporting on the book. In western Wisconsin, is absolutely beautiful. It's like this postcard agricultural land. It's all rolling hills and sort of, you know, dairy farms and stuff. And But every few miles, there's just an enormous open pit mine where they've just ripped all the soil away and scooped out what was underneath. So... I know, that's how I feel sometimes. I know, too. it's... Uh, <laughs> it's... it's the, my experience reading this was both having my eyes opened to the ubiquity of sand and our need for it. Uh, and it's, there's something really disconcerting about suddenly realizing you're addicted to a substance you didn't realize you were using, <laughs> right? It's, uh, and I, I think it raises a number of questions like, how can, we, how can we step away from it? Because not only because of the damage it's doing, but the other claim you make in here that I think was counterintuitive is we're, we're running out uh, of this, right? Now, I'm, I try to stay up to date on uh, the kind of long, ongoing, ever-accelerating environmental crises we're in. And so I think about desertification and things like that pretty regularly. And I think, well, I wouldn't have thought that we were running out of sand. Uh, but the story you tell is that we're running out of even the most common types, that even quartz, uh, there's, we're getting low, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, so the thing about desert sand, people always say, well, what about deserts? There's tons of sand in the deserts. There is, but the, all that sand is pretty much useless to us. So again, the number one thing that we use sand for is concrete, okay? And desert sand is the grains of desert sand are actually shaped differently than the stuff that you find on the bottom of rivers or lakes. Why? Because it's been eroded by wind rather than water over thousands and millions of years. And as a result, those grains are, are much smoother and rounder than the stuff that you find on the bottom of rivers. And it just, they don't lock together the way that you need them to, to make a nice stable structure. It's like the difference between trying to build something out of a stack of marbles as opposed to a stack of little bricks. So all that desert sand, pretty much useless to us. So that leaves, you know, the other type of sand, marine sands and, and uh, sand that's been left behind in, in floodplains and stuff. There's a lot of that. It's actually the most common thing on the planet. But like I said, we are using, we use 
more of it than any other resource except water and air. We use 50 billion tons of it every single year, which is enough to cover the entire state of California every single year. So that's a lot, right? That said, we're not going to actually run out. Like we're not going to, you know, be fighting each other over the last like little heaps of sand anytime soon. But what's happening with sand is a lot like what's happening with, with oil and gas, right? We keep hearing about, oh my God, peak oil's coming and then they find more oil. There's no peak oil. There's lots of oil and gas left in the planet. But what is happening is the stuff that's easy to get is pretty much gone. We've pretty much tapped it out. And we're having to go further and further and do more and more damage to get at the stuff that's left, right? That's why we're having to do things like fracking and offshore drilling, you know, drilling a mile or two beneath the surface of the ocean to get at oil. Um, you know, all these things, because the easy stuff is gone, very similar thing is happening now with sand. The easy stuff is mostly gone, and we're having to go further and further afield and do more and more damage to get it. And like I said, this is especially true in, in the developing world, in places like India, China, Indonesia, Vietnam, where populations are growing really fast, cities are growing really fast, and you know it's just putting enormous pressure on whatever, resor whatever sources of sand there are ready to hand. Some of the um, thinking about the developing world and the way that uh, the, this intense sand usage uh, that's going on, this intense building project that's going on, uh, recalled some of the earlier periods in our country's history and the North Atlantic countries uh, and the use that they were going through. You give some statistics in here that are really sort of staggering about how much sand is being used now, how much is being extracted in order to supply one year compared to previous times. Can I give you my favorite yeah, please. statistic? Please. So just to give you a sense of how much we're using, China all by itself used more concrete, in, which again is mostly sand, in the last three years than the United States used in the entire 20th century. That's how fast they're building cities. So every, think about every road, every dam, every airport that was built in this country between 1900 and 2000, China used more concrete than that just in the last few years. And it's not slowing down. And it's, it's not slowing down. It's accelerating, down. yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, 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 our conversation so far might give you the impression that the book is kind of uh, a lot of these tales of woe. But it's, it sounds like a bummer. <laughs> but there's, there's also all these... It, it, I think it's, it, the story you tell has the ambiguity of really our modern society. It, all these sort of wonders mixed with this shadow all the time. And so one of the delightful bits about the book is that there's all these times when you tell the story of something and it's something that we use every day and you tell a story of how that came into existence or when that came into existence. Uh, and so often it's bound up with humans developing a new relationship to this substance that we're surrounded by. Uh, so can you tell a couple of those stories? Maybe um, oh, there's some wonderful ones about glass, some wonderful ones about sidewalks. Does anything come to mind that you'd like to... Sure. Well, since we're in San Francisco, i got to tell the, the story of Ernest Ransom. Um, so one of the things that really I just could not get over when I was doing this research was just 
concrete, right? I had just never even thought about concrete because it's so, it's like air, right? It's just all around us all the time, every day. I'd never stopped to think about where it came from, who invented it, like any of that. So come to find out, I mean, it's actually a very, it's very recent that concrete really took over our world. This whole world that made out of concrete that we have is a very recent thing. I mean, the Romans did use concrete 2,000 years ago. They used a lot of it. They were very good at it. And there's, some of their buildings are still standing. The Pantheon in Rome is a 2,000-year-old concrete building that's still standing. But somehow, when the Roman Empire collapsed, we just the world just forgot. Like, we just sort of forgot how to make concrete. The secret was just lost. And nobody built with concrete for about 1,500 years. And that finally started to change around the time of the Industrial Revolution, right? Around the, like, 1880s. People, it's sort of tinkerers, inventors were sort of playing around with it, like, sort of refigured out how to make it. Um, but it was very, it was a really minor thing. Right? I mean, almost until the turn of the last century, almost every building in the world was made out of brick or metal or wood. Almost nothing was made out of concrete. So one of the things that really changed that was here in San Francisco, there was a guy named Ernest Ransom, an architect, who came over from, from England and sort of set up shop here. And he was really interested in this concrete stuff. He thought this stuff had some real potential. And he started playing around with it. And one of his, the first big jobs that he got was uh, making sidewalks here in San Francisco, which is another thing I just never even occurred to me. Like, oh, once upon a time there were no sidewalks, right? But around this time, cities were growing really fast. San Francisco was booming. There were all these horses and carriages running up and down the roads. People were, you know, it was a big problem. People in the roads, horses in the roads. Somebody came up with the idea of, oh, let's have a separate thing for people to walk on sidewalks and then they thought well you know these sidewalks we make them out of wood let's make them out of something stronger ransom comes up and says i've got this stuff this concrete stuff so he made the first concrete sidewalks or he was one of the first people to lay down concrete sidewalks in san francisco and people thought oh that's a pretty good idea these things work really well but that was as far as it got because you couldn't really do much else with it until Ransom kept playing around with it, because the problem with concrete is it's very strong. Uh, it has a lot of what you call compressive strength, which means it's really hard to crush. But it doesn't have much tensile strength on its own. You can't stand it up without it falling over. So, this, so Ransom set out to try to solve this problem. And he sort of tinkered and invented and played around with it. And he came up with the system of putting steel bars inside of concrete, right? You've probably seen that like any construction site you walk by now, you'll see they, the first thing they do is they put all these steel rods in and then they pour the concrete around it. He basically perfected that, that concept of coming up with reinforced concrete, which was turned out to be the key thing that makes it possible, that gives concrete that tensile strength that makes it possible to make 100-story buildings out of it. So he came up with this, and he was like, this is a great thing. Everybody should start building with this stuff. He had a really hard time selling it. People were basically like, why, why would we use that? You know, we've got bricks, we've got stone, we have stonemasons. Forget it. Why would we use this concrete stuff? It's never been tried before. So Ransom tries and tries and tries to get people to make stuff out of concrete. By 1906, he had succeeded in putting up just two or three buildings here in San Francisco made out of reinforced concrete. Right? Everybody just thought he was nuts. Then comes the San Francisco earthquake. 
massive earthquake followed by an even more devastating fire. San Francisco is basically burned to the ground, except couple three buildings of Ernest Ransom's reinforced concrete buildings are still standing. The smoke clears, the dust finally settles, and here's these buildings still standing there, just fine. And that was one of the real turning points that made builders here in California and very quickly across the country and very quickly all around the world go, wow, this stuff is amazing. This stuff is actually incredibly useful. It's incredibly strong. It's really, wow, this is great. And from then on, like you can chart the use of concrete almost from that date where it just went from barely in use to suddenly absolutely everywhere. Yeah. Because it's cheap, it's strong, it's fire resistant, it's weather resistant. Yep. Uh, so it's it, very easy to work with. You don't need, I mean, one of the, one of the downsides to it was uh, one of the things that, it, that, that had kept people from using concrete in the first place was, was unions. In San Francisco and in Los Angeles, they had very, the bricklayers union was very powerful and they fought tooth and nail against this stuff because they realized concrete's really easy to build with. Any idiot can really mix up a batch of concrete and pour it into place. It really doesn't take much. And they knew that the bricklayers and the stonemasons saw this was going to put them out of business. And they were right. They, they fought it as long as they could, but basically, you know, history was against them. And, um, and uh, yeah, so, so it put a lot of skilled tradespeople out of work. But you can't, you really can't argue with it. Like you said, it's cheap, it's easy to work with. You can pour it into just about any shape you want. It's incredibly practical. Yeah, and it puts us in a kind of double bind because we can use it more cheaply and more readily to provide housing and buildings and all sorts of things that would otherwise not be available uh, and so readily available to people around the world. Uh, and yet, our use of it is generating all these problems at the same time. Right, right. It's a real double-edged sword, right? Because, I mean, here, like, you know, when if we think about concrete, most people are usually like, ugh, concrete, ugh, it's so ugly. You know, nobody wants to be in a concrete space. But around the world, all over the developing world, concrete is an incredible blessing. I mean, if you have... Just having a concrete floor, right? I mean, millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world live in places with no floor, with just a dirt floor. That's a great way to get all kinds of diseases, right? It's unsanitary. All, you can get um, uh, parasites. All kinds of health problems come from dirt floors. If you Having a concrete floor is a massive public health boost. And this has been studied all over the place. It, like, enormously improves public health just having concrete floors, let alone having a sturdy concrete structure, right? That's much more weatherproof than, you know, building something out of, you know, whatever, palm fronds or bamboo or whatever materials are at hand. Um, so concrete for, a, you know, for billions of people in the developing world has been a huge boom. It's why all those people have been able to leave their villages and come to the cities and have relatively much more sanitary, much safer, much sturdier housing. So we can't, we need concrete. We really need it. It's the most, it's far and away the most widely used uh, building material in the world. There's very good reason for that. It's really useful. But we've got to figure out a way to use it in a more sustainable way, in a way that's not, that doesn't have all these other terrible impacts on the other side. 
And like so many of the things in our in our extractive economy, we those of us who are benefiting often most from it hide the extraction, don't we? Right? There was something in here about the distance that the sand for our building in this city, which has experienced a huge building boom over the last decade. Uh, we're getting sand from from Canada. Is that yeah? Is that right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, Stop and think about that one for a second. But yeah, what's happened is in San Francisco and Los Angeles, where I live, in most urban centers in the U.S. I mean, a lot of the sand that built San Francisco either came up out of the bay or it came from Alameda County. Um, actually, a lot of uh, Henry J. Kaiser, you know, the Kaiser Foundation, that guy got his start mining sand in Alameda County to build roads. That's how he, uh, he got Do you know where going. it was in Alameda County? Where I think it was around Pleasanton. Where there, was he... Was he digging? Were there dunes? Yeah, was it, it was. It was. Um, it was a floodplain. Okay. Uh, and there was a lot. I mean, there's barely anything there at the time, right? But what's happened since is same thing in Los Angeles. We used to get most of the sand that built Los Angeles came from a place called Irwindale, which a hundred years ago was way out in the boonies. Now it's a suburb, and it's totally surrounded with shopping malls and housing developments, and nobody wants a sand mine next door, right? They are loud. They are ugly. They kick up all kinds of dust. So all those, the sand mines that, are, that, that were close have either been tapped out or they've been forced to shut down because nobody wants them. But that just means we still have to get that sand from somewhere. So San Francisco, uh, once, couldn't, once Alameda County stopped being an option, went north to, uh, to Sonoma County. And for quite a while, uh, a lot of the sand and gravel was coming from the Russian River up there, which also used to be just this backwater that nobody paid much attention to, but now is this lovely place where people have vacation homes and there's wineries and stuff like that, so they've shut down. They don't want the sand being mined there anymore either, so one of the places they've turned to is Canada. Like It actually makes sense. This is how scarce sand has gotten, how much demand there is. It actually makes economic sense to ship sand down by barge from British Columbia all the way down to here in San Francisco. And to Hawaii, if you can believe that. You tell these stories in here that uh, were stunning to me about about beaches and sand dunes and other areas just disappearing because of the sand mining. Uh, that, and I know those those that's sort of focusing on luxury places. It's focusing on things that people like to look at and that are scenic. But it it's stunning to think that whole landscapes have just been transformed and disappeared uh, because of this demand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, here in San Francisco, the financial district is built on reclaimed land. There was once upon a time, uh, I'm not exactly sure which neighborhood it was, but there was sand dunes in one of the neighborhoods near the financial district that were basically bulldozed to fill in the financial district, which was swamp, and turn it into real estate. Um, there's a big issue here. Uh, they're, they're, they mine sand from the San Francisco Bay. There's sand mining going on in the San Francisco Bay right now. Um, and, and a lot of people believe that this is one of the reasons that Ocean Beach, which is you know a beach just down south, Ocean Beach is definitely eroding. We know that for sure. And it may be because they're scooping so much sand out of the bay because a lot of that sand in the normal course of things would flow out of the bay eventually and flow down the coast and replenish that beach. 
So there's been a lot of uh, environmental groups here trying to get those the sand mining shut down. They've they actually lost their last court battle, but that's a big issue here. And um, yeah, all around the world, beaches are disappearing, partly because of sand mining, because beaches, and so beaches erode naturally, right? The wind and the waves are constantly washing out grains um, to sea, so beaches are constantly eroding. But in the normal course of things, they get replenished in one of two ways, either by rivers, rivers flow down and uh, bring more sand down to the beaches, that's how beaches got there in the first place, and or ocean currents bring sand down from, from other places. But again, human beings, it's always our fault, right? It always comes back to us. We're blocking both of those processes. So we're building dams and we're scooping sand, sand mining from rivers. So we've really cut down the amount of sand that's getting out to the beaches. And we've built so much stuff along the coast, jetties and marinas and other kinds of infrastructure, that it's blocked that flow of, of seaborne sand. So natural erosion is continuing, natural replenishment is not. So this is a serious problem in South Florida, another place I went to do my reporting. So all those famous beaches in South Florida, Miami Beach, Fort Lauderdale, they would be completely gone by now if they weren't being artificially replaced. The way that they were artificially replacing them for years was they were just going out, they would send a dredge out to sea, suck up sand from the bottom of the ocean, shoot it up onto the coast. All of Southern California has run out of ocean sand. They have literally used up all the sand that is available to them in Miami, in Broward County, they're almost down in Palm Beach County. So now they have to bring it in by truck. So all the famous sand in Miami Beach now is brought in, it's actually dug up out of a pit somewhere in central Florida and brought in by truck. The, uh, uh, when I tend to think about environmental issues, uh, I oftentimes think about the big one looming over us. I think about climate change and the effects of climate change, and I associate that so often with a different extractive economy, the fossil fuel economy, right? And the, there's fracking connections to it. Uh, but you, you say in here that, uh, you say, uh, how did you put it? You said something like sand is the, it's the sibling of uh, fossil fuels, or it's the, the quiet companion of fossil fuels, or something to that effect. Yeah, it's like the, the handmaiden of the automobile is yeah. the main thing, is the main way that I think. I mean, first of all, concrete manufacturing is itself the number three greenhouse gas producer in the world. It's a huge source of carbon emissions. So that's one problem. Is that from the energy spent making the concrete? It's the energy and also the stuff that gets released in the process. Huh. To make to make cements, you've, you fire uh, limestone and other chemicals to get the cement, and what gets released, the, the, uh, the, you know, the, the output, what's the word that I want? The junk that gets released <laughs> <laughs> that goes up into the atmosphere is... I like the word stuff. Stuff. Yeah. Let's call it stuff. But yeah, but one of the things that I kept that that really came that I had never really thought about before was the ways in which sand makes the automobile possible, right? So again, around the uh, around the turn of the last century, in the early 1900s, there were barely any paved roads in this country at all, right? Most, if the, uh, we had something like there was less than a hundred miles of paved highway in the entire United States. Right, if there and paving was mostly like with rock, very like crude stuff. What changed that was the automobile, right? All of a sudden, the car gets created, 
and people really liked it and they started buying them by the millions, but a car is pretty useless if you don't have a paved road to drive it on. So the, the fact of the automobile, Henry Ford making the automobile a mass manufactured product created this enormous demand for paved roads right around the same time that Ernest Ransom was bringing concrete, that concrete was coming into use. So it was like a perfect sort of moment of synergy. All of a sudden we have this concrete stuff. People want hard paved roads. Let's just start paving roads. The more roads that got paved, the more people wanted cars. The more cars that there were, the more people, the more roads that we needed. The more roads that we needed, the more cars that we got. And it's created this cycle that continues to this day. Right? So without, in a very real way, sand in the form of concrete and asphalt enables fossil fuel driven transportation. So what, it, we're using so much of it and we're bringing ourselves to crises points regularly in relationship to it where we're getting ecosystem collapses and we're, uh, it's, it's creating this whole corruption economy. Uh, you talk a little bit about regulation here, but I have to say, I, you're, I thought a lot of what you said about regulation was really sobering because you made the point that uh, even when we get the good laws on the books, there's there's so many sort of backroom deals and uh, slipping a little something to the regulators. So yeah, it just, just seems like it's straight. not... So what... You spent a lot of time thinking and caring about this. What where do you see us going from here? How do we, can we, can we technologize ourselves, our way out of this? Is this uh, good question? Yeah. What, what do we do? Yeah. What do we do? So there's a few kind of a couple layers of, to, of, of answer to that question. Number one is, you know, better rules, better regulations and better enforcement of them. I mean, I should say here in this country, there's definitely there is definitely environmental damage that's that's caused by sand mining. It's not nearly as bad as it is in the developing world, and the reason for that is because we actually have a pretty decent system of of rules regulating it and pretty decent enforcement mechanisms. In places like India, Vietnam, Indonesia, you either don't have those rules at all, or they have them. Like India actually has really good environmental laws on the books but they are just totally ignored because there's so much corruption in the system. It's so easy to just pay off cops, government officials, inspectors, whoever's job it is, really doesn't take much to get them to just turn a blind eye. So you gotta do something about the issue of corruption, which is a whole nother story. So that's one, that's one angle. Technology can help, for sure. I mean, there are, uh, there's a lot of research being done about ways to, to make concrete, which again is the number one issue, to make concrete in ways that use less sand uh, or that use other things besides sand, like shredded plastic or bamboo or different kinds of industrial waste. Hemp, there is a product on the market called hempcrete. It's always a good laugh getter. <laughs> um, anyway, it exists. I haven't tried it myself, but it's out there. <laughs> um, so... So there's a lot of research out there. There's a, like, there are a couple few products that have actually made it to market. Um, there are some, there's a couple of uh, outfits in Europe that are working on ways to use desert sand to make concrete. I don't know how it works. They, you know, they're, they're working hard on it. So I think all that stuff is to the good and more power to them. Like we should, you know, they deserve all of our support. But so far all of that is just really, it's a drop in the bucket. And at the end of the day, 
I don't see how we can get out of using sand. Because like I said, we need concrete. You know, there's, it's the most versatile, most useful building material we've ever found by far. And we need huge amounts of it because there's 7 billion people in this world who all want and who deserve, you know, a decent, sturdy place to live and decent roads to drive on and, you know, decent hospitals to go to and offices to work on. And I don't see any way to do that without concrete, without sand. So the only, ultimately, the only real solution to me is, is to frame the question differently, to not ask, what can we do about sand? How can we use less sand? The question really is, how can we use less of everything, right? It's about figuring out a way that we can use, because it's not, it's not just about sand, right? I mean, we all know this, right? We're using too much fresh water. We're, using too, we're catching too many fish. We're cutting down too many trees. We're burning too much oil. All those things, they all point to the same problem. They're all just symptoms of the same problem, which is we're just using too much stuff, right? This whole way of life that we invented here in the West is just unsustainable. It cannot work for a world of seven, eight, nine, ten billion people. We've got to figure out a way to build our cities and to live our lives in a way that's more sustainable, that just uses less, fewer resources so that there's enough for everybody. Yeah. There was a, there was a point in here when you, you talked about uh, the... Uh, you talked about digital technology, and uh, you didn't quite bring up the the claims that are sometimes made about the the new economy no longer being subject to material limits. But but I thought you were maybe trolling that a little bit when you said that uh, our ingenuity is going to outpace the materials we have access to. We're we won't be able to just keep innovating because we're using the materials that. Are absolute, we're using up the materials that are absolutely necessary for us to continue pushing innovation forward. So it can't just be a question of a pure sort of, you know, shift it into high gear and innovate our way out of this. There needs to be a more fundamental uh, shift in relationship to how we approach the earth, how we approach the substances we make use of, and how we approach building communal lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the bottom line is most people in the world now live in cities. That's going to continue. Cities are where human beings are going to live. We, and the way that we make cities now cannot continue. It just can't. So uh, we either figure out a way to do it better or disaster. <laughs> so let's hope it's the first one. Let's hope it's the first one. Um, it's been a real treat to be in conversation with you. I think it's an important book. I, I wish you the best of success with it and really appreciate you spending time with us tonight. Well, Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.